Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. The last episode we recorded in person there at your studio, the first time I'd I'd been to your studio in in quite some time since the lockdown started. And uh, a few people expressed a bit of concern about that, but I I did have a a mask with me. And I also had uh, fresh from my my 3D printer a a custom accessory for that mask that, that you had sent me which was uh, quite a, a neat little addition. It gives a very snug fit to the mask because it actually is built off of a, a 3D scan of, of your face using the uh, essentially the same tech that Face ID uses on the iPhone to, to generate a, a custom-fitting overlay for uh, any fabric or, or cloth-type mask. And uh, pretty impressed with this uh, little piece of, of tech, and as uh, simple and yet complex as, as it is. Um, so we did take uh, reasonable precautions and, and kept our, our distance there in the the shop as well while I was there. And uh, I fear you've you've had a chance to print your own of these since then as well. Yeah, I've actually printed a few of these now. Um, uh, one of the nice things about this tech, as you say, it uh, it uses a scan of your face taken from the phone. One of the advantages of a lot of the new tech that's being put into the the iPhones is that it it allows you to do these um, these three D scans of things. And uh, in this case, there's a company that's created a piece of software that you do a, a quick scan of your face, and it's then able to generate a uh, sort of a generic frame for your face that is fitted for your face. So it's sort of a generic shape, but it's it's uh, fitted exactly for your face. And I've printed off a bunch of these now. Done one for uh, for Rich and myself and Tamara, and um, you know, and a few other people. So they're uh it's really really easy to to do them it's it's actually scary just how simple it is to generate this 3d model and then generate the uh, the mask from it uh, in fact there's an option in that software to be able to do a full 3d scan of your head and then output an stl file which is a just a 3d point file uh, that can be put into various 3d modeling applications and uh, so i did do that as well and so now I have a 3D model of my head that I can bring into applications and, you know, maybe do something nefarious with and uh, maybe maybe I'll create a giant sculpture of myself at some point. <laughs> Just how giant? <laughs> well, we do have a large area out in front of our studio that's currently empty and needs something in it. So um, maybe, I don't know, 20 feet tall? How does that sound? <laughs> it actually sounds achievable with the, the, the CNC equipment you guys have there in the shop. <laughs> yeah, that's the funny thing. Some of the tools we have, we could actually do it. But yeah, it's it's scary just how fast and how accurate this thing is. Like it's I, I was I was skeptical when Rich first told me about it. And I'm like, yeah, how good is this actually gonna be? And it is really, really good and it fits perfectly. <laughs> and you know, I know people that have small noses, I know people that have big noses, you know, and and it fits perfectly around their big or small nose so it's it's exactly what they need and uh, yeah it's it's turned out pretty well so we'll we'll make sure to put a link in the show notes to this application you can do the basic one for free uh, there's no cost associated with it at all and then of course you just need access to a 3d printer mm-hmm. yeah i'm always a little leery of, of free apps particularly when they're you know harvesting facial data and, and this sort of thing uh but the company here is it's bellus 3d and uh, it seems they're they what they do for uh, their prime business actually has to do with dental work and whatnot, which will often involve taking a scan of a face. They've simply repurposed that tech uh, to rise to the occasion 
and, and deliver a really useful and, and handy app to, to help in the fight against COVID-19. And the app itself does also have a, a viable business model to it in that you can customize it and, and throw some money at them to be able to do that as well. But just for the, the basic tech and, and getting a printout that, that has their name emblazoned upon it, uh, it is absolutely free to use. And uh, the name of the app is just simply FaceApp. And again, that's by Bellis 3 d and then uh, an even simpler and, and low-tech take on this by a, a designer that they've made freely uh, available through a, a tutorial on, on YouTube and, and some downloads for, for the cutout files is uh, a system that uses uh, just a flat rubber sheet that you use to, to make uh, custom rubber gaskets with, generally for like automotive and, and other purposes like that. Uh, but it's actually a, a useful material uh, for watchmakers too, because because sometimes you'll you'll have some older watches that have these flat gaskets in them, and and you can use this same material uh, to make a a flat gasket that is custom tailored to to the shape of the case, just by by tracing out a, a case back on it, or or say the correct diameter for for what you're looking for. Uh, but just using a simple sheet of rubber and a printout from a a computer printer. Uh, you can, can trace the shape on, cut it out, and uh, you get a, a very tight fit uh, on a fabric mask that, that contours to your face in the same way that, or, or similar enough way, what an N95 mask would be like uh, on your face. So that's an even simpler approach, and, and we'll post a link to, to that video as well for anyone who, who might want a, a closer fitting mask but may not have access to a 3D printer. That'll certainly be a little bit easier for some people depending on what access they have to uh, to different technology. Uh, it, it certainly will be interesting to see what other methods people come up with for creating better fitting masks because as useful as the cloth masks are that people are making, uh, there are still limitations of what they're doing uh, just because they're not close fitting over your face. And, uh, you know, a lot of people complained, for instance, about their their glasses fogging up when they're wearing a mask. It's like, well, that means that it's not actually doing everything that it's supposed to be doing because mm -hmm. you've got air coming up unfiltered uh, between the the mask and your face. We'll see what happens with uh, with some of these. The more the more of them that are out there, the better. And uh, I suspect that before too long, most people will have uh, hopefully will have some kind of tight fitting um, either custom or semi custom way of uh, of actually putting a mask on their face and keeping themselves safe. I'm sure we're going to be seeing more and and more of this. As time goes on, at least until a vaccine is found for for COVID nineteen. Well, I'm hoping this actually sticks around for a while. Obviously, COVID nineteen will eventually be something that we either have a vaccine for, or uh, it sort of dies down enough because there's a, there are enough people in the community that have some kind of uh, tolerance to it that it it can't spread as a pandemic. But at the same time, this isn't the only airborne virus that we have to deal with on a regular basis, and probably not the last airborne virus that we're, we're going to have to deal with. So hopefully this is something that we can sort of keep around and uh, and sort of keep keep handy for whatever future issues we have and, and uh, maybe even just something as simple as the flu season. You know, hopefully we'll see more people in North America uh, and in the West in general, to be honest. Um, hopefully we s we'll see more people actually wearing masks when they're sick or when, uh, you know, when they're, we're in the height of flu season. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, Something that just occurred to me and, and my wife just recently is, is the fact that no one in our family ha has been sick since the lockdown began, which is 
it's kind of unusual when, when you have uh, children uh, going to school, uh, particularly a kindergarten, grade one sort of age, just like get subjected to a, a petri dish of of all manner different germs and, and things uh, throughout the course of their week. And uh, I don't think there there has been a, more than a three week stretch since my my son started going to school that that at least one person in the family has not been sick. And and now we've gone for several months uh, with everyone in in good health. So uh, I'm certainly grateful for that. <laughs> Yeah, I'm I'm kind of worried about the flu season that's coming up uh, later this year just because uh, I think that'll be long enough after the worst of this pandemic that people will let their guards down a little bit and then we'll get a double whammy of the flu, the cold and, you know, and probably COVID-19 hitting again. So, uh but you're not the the first person that's told me the the similar story where they this is the healthiest they've been in years just because their children are no longer uh going to uh you know, bioweapon factories called schools and, and picking up whatever, whatever latest, uh, you know, weaponized viruses uh, has accumulated there. So the latest time for a pint will have dropped uh, by the time this episode goes live. And actually, you probably tuned in for for that episode already uh, there, Chris. I have yet to catch up. Uh, but uh, the, the one prior to that, uh, I, you know, I, I was not allowed to miss. I, I was there. <laughs> I, I took part. I got to, to see your, your lovely visage there on the screen before me. And uh, I, actually, I actually had uh, someone comment to me that, the, that they were quite, quite impressed with both of our, our video feeds. And uh, I got to see a little behind-the-scenes peek of uh, your setup. And uh, it, was, it was quite impressive. Uh, so, so just how did you manage to get uh, such lovely video coming in through Zoom there? Well, I, I have to say, I was uh, I was mildly annoyed about some of my stuff that I figured out later. Like my audio was was uh, there was an audio sync issue with mine, and it was off by a couple of frames, which was kind of annoying. I, I'm sure most people didn't even notice it, and they probably chalked it up to a Zoom issue. Uh, but my audio was uh, was about four frames out of sync with my video, which was uh, mildly annoying to me, um, just because it's I, I have been playing more with video and audio editing a lot over the last uh, last few years, so I, I'm noticing those things. But uh, yeah, I was using a, a new setup that I've got that I've been trying to figure out for doing live streams. Uh, some in some ways for this kind of thing, for being able to do uh, you know something like a Zoom call or whatever, you know, where you're doing a virtual get together but also for being able to do live streams to something like YouTube. And so I've been I've been working on a setup like this for a while now and I've wanted to build a setup like this for a while. And in my case I'm using a uh, product from Blackmagic Design called the ATEM Mini Pro and it's actually designed as a video switcher for specifically for streaming live video. Uh, so you could put multiple HDMI inputs into it. And those HDMI inputs can be literally any HDMI input. You know, it could be a camera, it could be a computer, it could be a PlayStation, right? It could be anything you want. It will then take it and allow you to control those streams. It'll allow you to control which camera is live at that time. Uh, it takes the audio and deals with the audio properly, all of those kinds of things. And in the case of something like a YouTube live stream, uh, it will actually allow you to... Uh, stream straight from the device up to YouTube. You don't actually have to have a computer in between or anything like that. Uh, so the intention for me is that I want to be able to eventually stream what I'm doing at the workbench, whether I'm at the jeweler's bench, at my watchmaker's bench, whether I'm turning at my watchmaker's lathe, 
probably more often than not, it will be for something like my straight line engine, uh, because that's something that, that very few people have access to or, or get a chance to see uh, sort of live. So I'll be able to stream what I'm doing. I can cut to different cameras depending on what it is that I'm doing. People will be able to then ask me questions as I'm doing things uh, live. So that's what uh, that's what that was designed for. And then in my case, I had it. Um, I had my uh, Blackmagic Pocket Cinema Camera 4K plugged into it, uh, which is complete overkill for what it was doing. It's it's only ever outputting at 1080p, but you know it's the camera that I happen to have around and and that was um, was decent quality. So that was what I had uh, aimed at me. I wasn't just using my uh, the camera off my MacBook Pro or whatever. Um, so that's why I was able to get a an interesting angle, you know, a decent angle of, of my face and it looks good and it's all that good stuff. So it has a proper lens on it, all the fun things. A lovely bit of bouquet in the background too. Yeah. It's, it's nice having a proper camera to do that stuff with. And there are, again, there are things that you can do with it that you can't do with uh, a webcam. Although one of the things that kind of annoyed me was that I, I went to the effort of actually properly color correcting and, um, uh, my image beforehand, um, not realizing that everybody else's was going to be very warm, and um, you know, so everybody else's image looks uh, looks quite warm, and mine looks very cold by comparison. Even though it's actually color accurate, it, everybody else's looks warm, and mine looks cold. So I was kind of annoyed by that. I'm like, I should have warmed mine up a bit so that it matched the uh, the look and feel of everybody else's. It's nice that you're able to have the the power and control to to have been able to do that had you wanted to a typical webcam is not going to give you uh, that that sort of breadth of control over what's coming Mm -hmm. out of the camera this is actually a remarkable product uh, especially for the price it's um there are two versions of it there's a pro version and and sort of a normal version Uh, both are excellent and uh, both are under a thousand dollars and they really are they have a lot of the features that pro level video switchers have and uh, in fact blackmagic actually design pro video switchers that are worth multiple tens of thousands of dollars and are designed for doing full-on 4k production you know broadcast to air kind of uh, studio setups and so this is based on their background and knowledge and doing that kind of thing and this provides you with a huge percentage of those features uh, you know, there's certain things like this only does 1080p output to the internet if you're uh, if you're streaming from it, uh, whereas their their high end pro switches will do 4k footage. But you know, for most people, it's not that's not that important. And the features that you get out of this are are so powerful. Also, you're able to do all of the compression and all the video streaming and everything off of the device instead of your computer. Uh, one of the reasons why a lot of people have problems streaming to Twitch or or YouTube or anything like that is because their computer is trying to handle all the compression and they're usually trying to do that at the same time as they're doing something else like playing a video game or whatever. And so it it can't really handle both tasks very well at the same time. And in this case, you don't have to worry about that because the, the switcher actually takes care of it. And hopefully one of these days, if, uh, you know, if, and when we're actually able to have gatherings again and, and be able to do stuff as a group, Rich and I have talked about having talks and whatnot at the gallery, uh, being able to open it up as something that we can do, um, you know, talks on various subjects in the maker community. And it would be nice to be able to live stream those events. And so this is something that I can use for that, uh, where we'd actually be able to live stream that and um, and make it available at the same time as uh, 
you know, as we're actually doing the event, so people who can't attend in person can actually uh, see what's going on. And what lens were you using with the Blackmagic? Uh, that one was a 12 to 35 millimeter lens. Uh, it's the, um, so the black magic is using a micro four thirds sensor. This is going to be super geeky for most people, but for those who are, who are interested, it is a micro four thirds sensor and it is using a Panasonic, uh, 12 to 35 millimeter lens, uh, probably zoomed into about 24 millimeters if I remember correctly. And then my lighting was coming from an aperture 120 D uh, which is a LED constant source LED light that's daylight balanced. Just pulling out all the stops. Oh yeah. Well, the things I've already got the gear right. Like we use this stuff for when we're filming in the in the studio already. Uh, you know, having a decent camera is something that I've I've always had a pretty good camera uh, at my fingertips. Uh, initially for stills photography and more recently for doing video work. And we're used to doing that sort of thing right now in the studio because we're filming a lot of what's going on. Uh, like last week we were working on building a new welding table for the studio. And so a lot of that was being filmed. Uh, again, same thing with my shop stuff, my shop tours that I'm doing. Those are all being filmed on the Blackmagic camera. So it's nice to have access to decent equipment that you can f- use for this. And, you know, in this case, uh, while it was overkill for a Zoom call, uh, it is nice to be able to have access to it. And for piping the, the video into Zoom itself, were there any hurdles to overcome there? Or were you able to just... Pick it from the, the pop-up menu there. One of the nice things about the A10 Mini Pro is there is a USB-C port on the back of it. You plug that into your MacBook, and it's immediately recognized as an external webcam, and Zoom immediately prioritizes external webcams over the internal one. Uh, so I didn't even have to choose it. It was it just automatically picked it up and used it. It was uh, it was unbelievably trivial to set up. Nice. Yeah, I had I had no idea you were were going to be be doing this, and uh, I I too also set up a, an external camera, uh, but I I did it just for for kicks really, um, because I I'm not a I'm not a huge fan of of Zoom. Uh, I don't trust Zoom further than I can throw it, uh, especially given some of the nefarious stuff they were doing to people's systems, and a lot of the comments too, just uh, from from the CEO there. So I actually, uh, because I was going to be hopping on the the Zoom call, went and went to the trouble spinning up uh an entirely new uh os on my my machine because i didn't want to install zoom on uh, on my main machine um so i whipped up a quick partition uh set up a whole new os and since i was doing that i was like heck why why not just you know do all sorts of crazy things i wouldn't normally do on on my system so i installed a, a couple of third-party pieces of, of software and uh, actually pulled the the signing certificate off of zoom as well because it wasn't quite so easy for me to pipe my camera in, uh, but using a combination of, of two apps, Camera Live and, and Cam Twist, I was able to spin up a little siphon server uh, and pull in the, the feed from uh, an old DSLR that uh, I was able to, to pipe my video through. Nice. So I, I don't recommend doing this on, on your <laughs> own, own systems. Uh, this is just purely... Uh, just a, an exploration to, to see what was possible because this isn't something that's uh, officially supported. I have an, an older Canon DSLR, and uh, Canon has actually released a, a lovely utility for their newer cameras, um, I believe, since the, the pandemic started uh, to make it very simple to use your DSLR as a, a webcam. Uh, but I went to a more surreptitious route, and uh, surprise, surprise, it, it actually worked. Yeah, there's a few options out there that are that make things a little bit easier. It's nice to see the Canons made it uh, a bit simpler for their uh, 
uh, their newer cameras to work. Uh, I shoot Nikon and I don't think Nikon's done anything similar, but I, I've never looked into it because I've, I've got this A10 Mini Pro, so I don't really need to. Uh, I know a friend was asking me about the Elgato option that's out there. Uh, I haven't actually tried it, but I know that um, a number of people have started using that. Uh, it was, I think it was originally designed for gamers uh, to be able to live stream. And uh, they've, you know, so it, it handles the, I think, any HDMI connection into it, uh, but a single HDMI connection into it. Uh, but it's still relying on the base computer to do a lot of the compression and um, uh, and sorting out that video for you. So that's why it's, uh, you know, they're, they're not quite as good as some of the hardware solutions like the, the ATEM Mini is. But yeah, it's, uh, there's a, certainly a lot of people trying to figure out how to get better video going out of their computers these days and it's uh who would have thought in uh in 2020 that the fact that you know most laptop manufacturers are still putting really crummy video cameras in their in their laptops was actually going to be a sort of a global problem and uh it was going to be a concern for people you probably get better video from your ipad than you do from your laptop absolutely yeah yeah the the fact i don't think I'm just thinking, I think the front-facing camera on the iPads, at least the iPad Pro, has been better than anything that's in a MacBook Pro, at least for the last three or four years. I would not be surprised if the next generation of MacBooks, for instance, all have dramatically better cameras in them. And same thing with, you know, all the Windows laptops that are out there and the Chromebooks and stuff like that. I I bet you we're going to see a huge surge in higher quality video cameras in these things. The the rumors are to be believed that the next Mac... This is likely to be far more iPad-like in, in terms of its processor than uh, any of the Macs that have come before it. Yeah, it's sort of an interesting, again, getting into sort of geeky, down-in-the-weeds stuff. The um, It looks like Apple's going to be doing a transition from the Intel processors they've been using for a while into their own ARM-based processors that they design and make themselves. Yeah, well, uh, that, that'll be an interesting thing to see and follow. Again, it's going to be pretty geeky for, for most people, but... Uh, it has the potential to dramatically improve performance and, more importantly, dramatically improve battery life. So I'm really mm-hmm. curious to see that. Um, it's That's going to have a huge impact, I think, on uh, on portables and just how much battery life we're getting out of them. Because I, think, I don't think they're going to do much to reduce the size of them uh, in terms of battery capacity. Uh, there's, like, there's good reasons why they're at the battery capacity they are now, and it's because they... It's the maximum they can, uh, at least in a, a 16-inch MacBook Pro, for instance, that's the maximum that they can put into a MacBook and still have it legal to fly on planes in the U.S. And I suspect that they'll probably keep that max battery life the way that it is just because it is it is convenient. But at the same time, if they can get dramatically better battery life, like if they can get the same battery life that a uh, an iPad gets, uh, you know, sort of equivalent, it, you know, my MacBook could probably go for days without charging at that rate. Mm-hmm. So I'll be, uh, I'll be really interested to see that. It's one thing that came up on, on time for a point that I wasn't adequately prepared for is, uh, Matt asked me about the story behind tracking <laughs> down the crystal. And, uh, I have probably ordered hundreds, if not close to a thousand crystals <laughs> between the time that <laughs> I had finally tracked down the, this particular obscure crystal, uh, which was a, a very unique crystal for a, a watch that had belonged to my, my grandfather. Uh, so, so the details were fuzzy, but it, in reflecting uh, on it since Matt asked there uh, in the the live stream, 
uh, more of the details have come back in, into focus for me. And I, I thought it'd be interesting for us to dive a little deeper into just what it takes or, or can sometimes go into hunting down obscure parts. And uh, there's going to be different uh, approaches or, or avenues of uh, attack for different parts in a what, but for purposes of the this conversation will we'll just stick to to the crystal, and I'll, I'll relay in a little more detail uh, what I went through to, to finally get this crystal. And uh, ideally, with with a a watch, uh, you'll have a model number to work off of. And uh, in this particular case, uh, I didn't have that, which which makes things even more challenging. Because if you have a, a model number, often you can just get a, a part number from a, a reference book that way. But uh, unfortunately, this particular Longines watch, which is from the early 1950s, uh, does not have a model number on it. Uh, I've not been able to pin down any advertising material or sales catalogs or the like from the era either. And uh, unfortunately, uh, Longines itself uh, sold off uh, a lot of its tooling and and whatnot from this era back in the the quartz crisis. So uh, Longines itself is not uh, able to to help with parts for watches uh, of this age and, and from this era in the same way that a company like, say, uh, its brother company, Omega, or brands like uh, Rolex and, and Patek Philippe would be able to do for, for their clients. Uh, so I was kind of left to my, my own devices with this. And uh, I was actually oblivious to the fact that this particular watch... Uh, ever had a, a special crystal on it because uh, the way that I received it, it was just a very plain looking crystal. And then I, I came across in a, a book that essentially a, a catalog for, for collectors, uh, what looked to be the identical watch that, that my grandfather had owned. And it had this really unique crystal on it that I hadn't seen on a, any sort of watch before. And uh, it, it very nicely mimicked and complemented the the contours of the case. So to me, it's said like this is how the watch was was supposed to be. So that's sort of what what sparked my my search for this this crystal. And uh, that's basically all I had to go on. And uh, so I called around to a number of firms uh, across Canada and in the U.S. And uh, I'm pretty sure I actually called cousins over in the U.K. as well and just sort of described it. Uh, which is really never <laughs> never a good way to to try and pin down a, a watch part and uh, watch supply houses have to deal with with this sort of thing all the time from uh, people who who aren't watchmakers. So as a watchmaker, you know, calling that uh, this this isn't the way to to really be going about this. A few companies were open to having me email them a, a copy of the photo, so I, I did that. And uh, unfortunately, the the photo itself, I can't even really call it that. Um, this was a, a black and white image. It might even have been a woodcut at the time of the, that it was produced. So this is not the the most pristine details that, that you're getting out of something like this, but that's sort of the the quality of, of printing that was available back in, in the 1950s for mass printed items. And this book for, for collectors was essentially amassed from a, a whole bunch of, of these sorts of images. Um, so that didn't get me very far. There were a couple of false leads uh, in the States and, and in Montreal. And ultimately, what, what I ended up doing is every once in a while, I'll need to get a, a crystal custom cut for, for an older case, generally for really old pieces, say from the, the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, 
particularly Art Deco type stuff. And uh, this this watch from my grandfather kind of has an Art Deco vibe to it, although it's not strictly speaking from the the Art Deco period. Uh, so when I was sending another piece off, I was like, you know what, this this is a watch that means a lot to me. I'm kind of nervous sending it off, but I do this all the time with them. I've never had an issue doing this before. So I, I sent it off to them uh, with the description of the crystal as well. And uh, they hunted around and, and they were able to, to find in the, the stash of parts that they had somewhere, they were able to find the crystal and, and get it to me. Whereas my initial inquiry with them had, had dug up nothing. Now, I know they buy out different uh, watchmakers and, and things like that to bolster their supply of parts. So it may have been that they, they truly didn't have it at the time that it just inquired just sort of with a description and, and a picture. But it may have been, too, that it's just it's really hard to try and pin down a, a piece or, or a crystal, particularly when you're talking about the tolerances on these things. Like, if you're off by a tenth of a millimeter on a, a crystal, that it's just not going to fit. And uh, you either end up having to modify it or it's going to fall out or all sorts of not-so-good things uh, could transpire. So it's important to have a, a really good fit. And it's not as if you're talking about a simple round crystal here, right? You're talking about one that has a, a fairly unique shape to it. I I can mm-hmm. honestly say I've never seen anything that, that even comes close to the shape of this crystal. Mm-hmm. No, nor have I. So the closest is a little bit of unusual fasting that I've, I've seen that's almost jewel-like or around mm-hmm. some acrylate crystals. But in terms of the fasting on this, yeah, I, I haven't seen anything else like it ever. So uh, I'm glad that I, I was able to ultimately track it down, but it, I did actually have to send the, the case in to a company and, and they spent the time to, to hunt something down for me. And I'm, I'm very grateful to them for that. So um, I'm quite stoked to have the, a new old stock crystal on this piece. And uh, that that is the, the fuller, more, more detailed story uh, on that. This happens with all sorts of, of parts all the time. I, I think one of my favorite memories or at least another favorite memory in, in dealing with with Perrin who's uh let's say one of one of the part suppliers I order from most being uh, here in, in Canada is uh I had uh, this old pocket watch that had a really unique balance step in it and of course one of the balance pivots w- was broken uh so I, I took it out of the the balance and, and measured it all up and I sent a drawing off to to Perrin and uh they wrote me back yeah, I could see in the preview, it said, congratulations, with a big exclamation mark. And I was, I was kind of excited. And uh, it, it went on to say when, it, when I opened the email, it says, congratulations, this is the most detailed drawing of a balance staff <laughs> we have ever received. <laughs> Unfortunately, we have nothing close. Uh, and and so I, I had to fire up the lathe on, on that one and uh, turn a brand new balance staff for, for that. Uh, but generally speaking, if you're, you're patient and, and persistent, uh, you can usually pin down the hopefully best case scenario the the exact piece in new old stock condition or at least something close so often with balance staffs and this is why i asked if they had anything that was even remotely close is uh, you can get something that's pretty close you may have to shave off a few hundredths of a millimeter Mm -hmm. maybe a tenth of a millimeter here or there Uh, but unfortunately with this this particular balance staff uh, as they said they didn't even have anything close to it Uh, so i had to, to turn that from the raw stock it is a bit challenging when you're dealing with parts and and watches that you you just can't get parts for and or they're they're challenging to find parts for and this is one of the challenges I've had when it's come to sort of picking out what movements I want to use in the watches that I'm I'm making 
uh, a lot of people have asked me why I don't want to just use ETA movements. And while some of them are certainly freely available today and the parts are freely available for them, uh, that's not necessarily always going to be the case. And in fact, it's it's changed dramatically in the last 10 years in terms of parts availability. So it's something that I need to consider when I'm when I'm figuring out what I want to make and, and what I want to use. And uh, in some cases, it's just, you know, things that are so far out of date uh, that there there never would have been parts, replaceable parts. Like I've got a uh, an 1850s pocket watch that I need to uh, to fix up. And one of the, I think there's like three or four gear teeth that are, that are uh, broken and missing uh, from one of the wheels. And I'm going to have to fabricate a new wheel for it because there's just no way that anybody would have ever made re- interchangeable parts for this, this watch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sort of predates the, the era of, of interchangeable parts in, in watches. Yeah, especially it was made in Scotland in, in the 1850s and I yeah, there's there's no way that anybody would have would like even if I found another watch from the same watchmaker, the chances of that wheel matching close enough to be able to fit in this it's just yeah, there's no chance of that happening. And you now tracking down parts for old watches is is one thing, but uh, it's, it seems you are not alone in in having some difficulty tracking down parts for brand new watches as well. Uh, yeah, uh, it's, it's been amazing how difficult it's been with, uh, I'm going to blame the pandemic. I, I'm assuming that's what's going on here. The, it seems like Switzerland is basically shut down and, uh, at least parts of Switzerland aren't even answering their email. Uh, I, I've been trying to get a hold of Eterna now for the last few months and I've heard nothing back from them, sent a few different emails and, uh, it looks like anybody that, uh, that I had dealt with in the past from Eterna has left the company now and they're their emails aren't even being forwarded off to somebody else. They're just bouncing straight back. So that's not encouraging, but we'll see if they eventually do respond back to me. Um, so I've, I've tried to order some other parts and, or some other movements as uh, potential replacements. Uh, they won't be direct replacements. And um, the uh, Turner movement I was going to use was going to have a moon phase on it. And uh, that's not necessarily an easy complication to find without a whole bunch of other stuff like the date window and things like that, that I just don't want. And so I'm trying to find a uh, time only movement that I'm happy with. Uh, but even then ordering that has been a nightmare. Uh, there was one, one that I was trying to get out of the States and that, uh, that got canceled. Uh, I had to cancel that order because it was, um, they couldn't figure out how to ship the, the thing internationally, which boggles my mind. And then, uh, I ordered a couple of ETA 7001s from Perrin out of Toronto and uh, they were great. They had it shipped out the the same day, which was wonderful. But Canada Post has been twiddling their thumbs, and you know they picked up the package last, I guess, a week ago, last Thursday, and it still hasn't arrived ten days later. So it's uh, it's a little bit frustrating how difficult it's been actually getting getting things to me so that I can try and get these watches finished and out there. Mm-hmm. This has actually become a, enough of an issue in the industry that the the New York Times has actually reported on it this past week uh, with a with an article about the fact that uh, the coronavirus has uh, just unleashed supply chain woes within the watch industry. And a, a lot of the article is focused on Swiss companies sourcing their, their parts from China, as, as many, uh, let's say, medium-range watches do. 
but there are also issues uh, within Switzerland as well, and, and some of that is brought up and, and brought to light in the article too, and, and certainly your your own experience in, in trying to source some parts directly from Switzerland speaks to that as well. So this is a, an article we'll, we'll link to in the show notes as well. Yeah, it's a, it's a serious problem, and I guess we'll see what happens with the restart of the economy, the restart of these countries. I don't know where Switzerland is at with trying to get back to work and trying to get things fired back up again or their industry fired back up again. Uh, I I know um, a friend of mine actually got stuck in Switzerland at the beginning of the pandemic. He uh, sadly had to go over for uh, a funeral for his grandfather and um, he got over there and, and then they wouldn't let him leave the country and he, he got stuck there for a couple months. So I don't know how far they are along in actually you know getting things back up and running it back to normal. But even once they do, I'm sure it's going to be months before they're doing anything even approaching normal sort of business. So uh, that's one of the reasons why I, I decided to uh, to sort of put the, the moon phase movement or the moon phase watch that I was working on on hold, did a slight redesign for a time-only movement, uh, which allowed me to make the uh, the watch a little bit thinner and and made me allowed me to change up a few other things i'll put out this first watch as a time only watch and it'll be fine i'm you know i'm happy with with doing a time only watch it was something i had planned on doing at some point anyways this just sort of moves it forward a little bit we'll see uh we'll see how fast things change um again i i still don't have a good uh strap supplier and uh i don't have packaging yet so both of those are things that i have to deal with at some point and uh i i still don't know what's going to happen with that I'm just hoping that everything sort of picks up soon enough that I can actually get those things sorted out. Mm-hmm. It's uncertain times, indeed. Mm-hmm. It sounds like there are a number of factories in, in China actually having to close right down. And uh, while it's not 100% clear in, in the article, it seems to be hints that uh, the same is, is true for several smaller firms in Switzerland as well. And that they just simply don't have the sort of the the cash on hand to to carry on business after being shut down for so many months or, or having large orders canceled uh, by brands like Fossil and, and whatnot that uh, these smaller firms were, were relying on as their, their bread and butter. Uh, and in additional follow-up from that Time for a Pint episode, uh, one of the questions that came up during the episode was um, asking which movement was in the watch that I was showing off. I had a Fears chronograph that I was showing off. It's a 1940s, sort of mid-40s chronograph. And it was uh, a Swiss-made watch. The case and the and the movement were, were made in Switzerland, uh, but it was made for the domestic UK market. Uh, it wasn't being exported, even though Fears was one of the largest exporters of watches in the UK at the time. Uh, this particular one was destined for the, uh, the local UK market. And uh, there were some questions as to which movement it was, and I didn't actually know at the time. I hadn't um, hadn't dug into it enough, uh, but I've since been able to figure out that it was a Landeron Forty Eight that's in that uh, that watch, and it's one of the workhorse chronograph movements that was available at the time. It's you know it's it's nothing remarkable, but at the same time, it's a good solid movement, and and uh, is still running just fine today, seventy plus years later. So I'm uh, I'm pretty happy with it. Yeah, Landeron made reliable chronographs as, as, as did many swiss brands or rather, rather movement makers uh, of that era like venus and and mm-hmm. of course lamania and the like yeah yeah absolutely and 
and it's again it's one of those common movements that that a lot of people were using at the time and and you could find on a on a lot of watches so even if i needed to i could probably find parts for it without too much difficulty uh, and obviously not new parts they wouldn't uh you know nobody's making new parts for this watch anymore but i'm pretty sure that if i needed to i could find uh, a donor movement that was in rough shape that uh, that had the parts that i needed and then the other uh, bit of follow up from the uh time for a pint was that uh Time for a Pint got a mention in the New York Times. Uh, again, the New York Times makes a second appearance in this episode. And uh, there was a, a really good article uh, five days ago, six days ago, I guess, um, called Just Hold Your Watch Next to the Screen. It's talking about how the uh, sort of watch collector community has really embraced the idea of doing these virtual gatherings and uh, as a way of, of sort of compensating for the fact that we can't do what we normally do, which is meet in restaurants and bars. And uh, so they talked about the red bar uh, get-togethers that uh, that have been happening, as well as uh, some of the uh, live streams that have been going on. I know that uh, Lee UN Reputee, uh, One Hour Watch, who we've obviously talked about a bunch of times on the show, uh, he did a, uh, a live stream, I think, with uh, Red Bar one day, showing him uh, doing some uh, sketching for an hour. And uh, and then they also talked about uh, time for a pint as well. Uh, so it was nice to see uh, these you know these groups who are you know are really trying to to keep going and to keep people sane in some cases um, during this this lockdown. It was nice to see them getting some recognition like this and uh, and getting a boost like this in the uh, the New York Times. Yeah, it's certainly well deserved. I really admire uh, what everyone is is doing to gather around and, and, and rally and uh, sort of bring th- people together uh, across the miles, despite not being mm-hmm. able to, to get together in person. It's actually kind of neat to to see the way the way that it's all, all taken shape and, and the fact that, you know, there there's some some upside to this in the way that you're, you're able to connect people on completely different continents that uh, might not otherwise be able to all, all get around uh, a table together in, in a pub somewhere. And, uh, I, I like that this has been sparked by this, you know, trying time of, of being in, in lockdown. And uh I, I'm encouraged too to to hear that uh Chris Mann and and the like are, are thinking of pressing forward and, and continue on the, these sorts of virtual get togethers uh, on into the future even once uh, this time has passed. Yeah, the the irony of it is that I'm actually chatting with Chris and Matt Moore because of this pandemic than I did beforehand, because, uh, you know, I've, we would chat obviously online and, and comment on each other's posts and stuff like that. But, you know, here I'm actually able to see these guys on a, on a weekly basis, hear what they have to say. I can participate in the chat in the, um, in the zoom chat, which is nice. And, you know, we can all sort of joke around a little bit about what's going on and, and it's nice to be able to do that. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm actually able to interact with these guys in a way that I, I hadn't been just because I am on another continent. And in fact, uh, this weekend, uh, the upcoming Time for a Pint is going to be uh, offset quite a bit because uh, there's a couple of Australians that are going to be joining the uh, the live stream. And so they're they're moving it f- um, forward by six hours, which means that it's going to be like 7 a.m. our time on, on Sunday when uh, the episode is uh, is being recorded live uh, in order to accommodate the uh, the Aussies. But, you know, that's that's the nice thing is that we're able to do that. We're actually able to have a couple of people from Australia involved in this live stream with 60 
80 people or whatever from, you know, from Europe and North America. And uh, that's just not something that, that you'd be able to do if you had to fly there. Uh, so it is nice to see that. And it's something I actually noticed when we started recording this podcast is, you know, even though you and I were, you know, would get together on a semi-regular basis and chat and have lunch and whatnot, uh, you know, we actually talk a lot more because we record this podcast every couple of weeks than we ever did beforehand. So it is nice that using these virtual technologies to be able to to connect and and sort of forcing you to chat regularly. Uh, obviously, it's going to be challenging to try and keep this up on a weekly basis. I, I don't think anybody could um, you know could fault Chris and Matt for for reducing the frequency of these uh, these virtual time for pints. But even if it's once a month, once every six weeks, uh, that would still be really great if that continues on after uh, this lockdown ends. Yeah, I don't know how they they've managed to sustain this clip because <laughs> I'm struggling just to to keep up uh, with, with watching the, the videos on demand, and uh, they're they're tuning in live as are you. But yeah, you know, John, they did have to to you know bring us in to 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 show up on the show. So you know, they're scraping the bottom of the barrel. Yeah. Uh, they are running out of interesting people to talk to when they when they bring on a couple of Canadians from a, a, some obscure podcast to to talk about watches. Yeah, all that is to say, kudos to to Matt and and Chris for essentially birthing this uh, out of thin air. I'm just about it, like they they yeah. really just uh, decided to have a go at it, and and they've refined things uh, as the get-togethers have, have gone along. I mean, they very quickly realized that that holding your your watch up to the, a, a webcam as as an, an <laughs> it doesn't New work. York Times article mentioned the ads, it doesn't quite work. Uh, so, so Chris has uh, prepared those slideshows, uh, which should show off the the watches uh, much better. And uh, it's just, uh, yeah, I'm really uh, happy with the, the format that, that they've come up with, and and the fact that they're able to to shed lights and into corners uh, of the industry and into watches and, and obscure pieces that uh, a lot of us might not otherwise have been able to see. Uh, one of the nice things about the the setup that I was talking about earlier, the video setup that I have earlier, is that I could have actually set up to be able to show my watch live and be able to have a good overhead view of it and things like that and, and be able to do a nice tight shot on it. But not everybody's in a position where they can do that. And the, Chris's alternative of having a, a PowerPoint that he does with photos, pre-prepared photos, is a great way of getting around this problem. Uh, it's worked out really well. And as you say, we, there have been some amazing watches that have shown up on here. Mm -hmm. They've had some spectacular guests, uh, and us aside, they've they've had some some really interesting people on the show, and they've they've had some watches that showed up that you would never see. Like when Kari was on, there's a couple watches that he that he brought along, and the chances of you ever seeing those watches are pretty low. So mm -hmm. it's it's kind of nice to see that sort of thing happen. And be able to hear from people that that you just don't normally hear from, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it's uh, it's really remarkable what they've managed to get going and and what they've managed to uh, to do with this. Although I often find that an hour is just not quite enough. There, uh, I know when we were on, the hours seemed to blow by pretty quickly, and I'm pretty sure that we could have. Well, we're used to talking for hours when we get on these uh, these calls, you and I for for the podcast. So I'm. I'm sure we could have gone on for for another half hour, forty five minutes without too much effort on that uh, that live stream. So yeah, sometimes the the hour seems to go by a little bit too quickly. 
I was very mindful of trying to, to keep things as tight and, and flowing, not to, to chew up too much time to keep us under the hour mark. Although I, I do 100% agree with you uh, in terms of the, the, the voting line in the episode that you mentioned. That's, that's one of the few that I have been able to tune in live to. And I had all manner of questions I, w- I would have loved to have asked. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, the, the, the meeting uh, did have to, to end and, and there was not time to uh, dive into this sort of level of detail I would have liked to have gotten into with, with some of the pieces. But uh, I am supremely grateful uh, that uh, they were even able to get Voti Linen and, and other mm-hmm. great watchmakers like Roger W. Smith on to, to chat. And uh, it's just been, yeah, just a really great initiative to see Blossom. And uh, yeah, well I, well, I don't think it is tenable to continue doing them every week, as you have mentioned. Um, I do hope it is something that is able to, to continue on in, in some manner um, well into the foreseeable future. Well, at some point or another, Chris and Matt are going to start running out of their own watches to show off every week. And uh, I, I don't know that their their budgets are going to be able to maintain uh, buying new watches every week just to, to show them off on time for a pint. So, um, yeah, at, at some point or another, something has to give. Thanks for listening to Off Hours. You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter at Off Hours. John can be found on Twitter at Under the Loop, and Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Silver underscore Hand. <laughs>